Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. So glad to have you along. We have a jam-packed program. You do not want to miss one minute of it. We have 90 minutes of information that will assist you in understanding what is going on in our world. Keep the dial set right where it is. I'm going to have a conversation with Rabbi Yoel Karen about the priestly blessings being pronounced on Jews all over the world via a web camera, but all the Jews gathered into Jerusalem, thousands of them. You don't want to miss that report. It's later on. In just a moment, we'll be coming up with that. We're in Atlanta, Georgia. We head out to Destin, Florida. We're going to have a Worldview Weekend Conference, 5 o'clock at the Embassy Hotel on Sunday afternoon. Love to see you there. Now let's get right to Ken Timmerman. He's in the Washington, D.C. area. We have so many issues to deal with today, Ken. Let me get right into them. There are reports. I don't know if they have been authenticated or not, but the White House supposedly has been holding secret meetings on the situation with al-Qaeda in North Africa. In addition to that, intel agencies are saying there's a cover-up going on. As you look at the Libyan situation, al-Qaeda in northern Africa, what can you tell us about this story? Well, Jimmy, uh, clearly the uh, Obama administration has been misleading the American public, not just about uh, Libya, but about al-Qaeda more generally in North Africa. Uh, They have taken over the country of Mali. Uh, They are working with drug traffickers in Latin America to ship drugs into into, uh, Africa and then up into Europe. Uh, And clearly, they were involved in the attack on our consulate in Benghazi. And we're just learning now, uh, in the past couple of days, that there were security procedures uh, to protect the consulate in in Benghazi, which were not pursued, which were not carried out. Uh, I think the administration has got a lot to answer for. They've been stonewalling Congress. They've been stonewalling the American people. Uh, We need to know uh, how this came about that a U.S. ambassador was murdered on U.S. sovereign soil in a U.S. embassy overseas uh, for the first time in our history. Uh, This is an outrage, and uh, the American people need answers. Well, does not the fact that uh, these intelligence agencies are gathering information for the purpose of the White House and other American officials actually making the right decisions, military decisions need to be made, etc., and if somebody's not uh, dealing with this intel that's coming in, we're in real deep trouble, are we not? Well, we are, and I'm worried that you're having a politicization of intelligence. Uh, Whenever that happens, uh, you get in trouble. The administration gets in trouble. Uh, In this particular instance, it looks like they're covering up information so that Congress uh, does not get the information it needs or the American public does not get the information we deserve uh, to get from from the administration. Uh, It's pretty clear at this point that al-Qaeda was involved in that attack. It was pretty clear the night of the attack, the president of Libya, the prime minister of Libya, uh, mentioned it uh, on local television. Uh, he had information. He knew what was going on, but it, for two weeks, uh, the U.S. administration, the Obama White House, did not appear or claimed not to know what was going on. I just think that's outrageous. We need clear answers. Congress has got to do an investigation uh, into this event and to the infiltration of the Muslim Brotherhood in our government. Speaking of the Muslim Brotherhood, 
They have been trying to get control of the entire Middle East. They took over Egypt. They now have a president in position, Mohamed Morsi, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood for many years, stepped out of that position to become president of Egypt. And then over in Libya, they were on the sidelines when the power vacuum opened up. They rushed in there in Syria. They're leading the activities of the opposition against Bashar Assad. And on Friday, yesterday, they had a big demonstration in Amman, Jordan. Looks like they're trying to take down the monarchy of King Abdullah there. They want control of the entire Middle East, don't they? Well, that's the goal of the Muslim Brotherhood, Jimmy. They want to control the entire Middle East. They want to start by controlling the Muslim world, and then they want to move beyond that. They want to move into Europe. They want to move into the United States. Uh, you know, documents that were presented uh, in a U.S. Uh, federal court in the Holy Land uh, Foundation trial, that's the biggest terrorism financing uh, case in history, show clearly that the Muslim Brotherhood sees America as a potential target. They would like to undermine us from within, those the words that they use themselves. Uh, so their goal is first to control, gain control of Muslim countries, second to spread into countries where there's a large Muslim immigrant, immigrant population, uh, such as Europe, and then third, to move into the heartland of um, those countries that are opposing them. That's the way that they see it, and that would be the United States of America. And if indeed that is able to be completed, then we're looking towards an Islamic control, a caliphate, as they are calling for, which is uh, world dominion. We have to stop being politically correct about this, Jimmy. I think that's the problem that um, uh, many, many politicians have in the United States. Uh, if you remember uh, Michelle Bachman and Trent Franks and Louis Gohmert, how they were criticized for asking uh, for an investigation of Muslim Brotherhood infiltration into U.S. government security agencies. They were, they were tarred and feathered, if you wish, by the national media. Ken, I know that you have covered the persecution of Christians throughout the entire Middle East. We, in fact, talked when you were in Iraq and right there on the Iraqi-Iranian border about the Christian persecution going on. Now there are reports coming out of the Sinai that Christians are fleeing from that part of Egypt because of the death threats they're receiving from the people like the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamists in that location. Well, I'm very concerned about that, and uh, I think that we're just seeing the beginning of the efforts by the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt to drive out the Christian population. Uh, it's going to be more difficult for them in Egypt than it was for the jihadis in Iraq because of the sheer numbers. There are uh, 8 million, possibly as many as 10 million Coptic Christians in Egypt, 10% uh, of the population, and uh, they have been there forever. Uh, they are the original Egyptians, uh, and, and uh, they have deep roots. Uh, and nevertheless, the Muslim Brotherhood is trying to impose the dhimmi status, the second-class uh, citizen status upon the Christians. You cannot build new churches. You cannot uh, rebuild existing churches. You cannot ring church bells on Sunday. These are Muslim rules, Sharia law, that they're trying to impose on the Christian population. Talk to me about uh, Turkey's decision to use military force against Syria. Syrians crossed the border into Turkey. Some battles took place. The Turkish Prime Minister, Tayyip Erdogan, 
went to the parliament and he said, we need to have a decision. They decided that uh, the military force can be used against Syria. He said he didn't want to go to war with Syria, but he has to keep his borders secure. This looks like things are heating up right there at the Syrian-Turkish border. Well, they are heating up, and it's kind of interesting to see uh, Turkey play this role. In the, in the past, Turkey's had a very close relationship to Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian dictator, uh, and now they have switched sides. They are uh, openly backing the Muslim Brotherhood alliance that is battling Assad in Syria. Uh, this, this civil war in Syria is becoming a Sunni-Shia divide. You have the Alawites, who are a Shiite sect, supported by Iran, uh, backing Bashar al-Assad, the dictator, and then you have the Sunni Muslim Brotherhood, now supported by Turkey, opposing him. Uh, it doesn't mean that the two of them won't cooperate, it, cooperate when it comes to killing Jews and it comes to killing Americans, or comes to killing Christians, for that matter. But for the time being, you have a Sunni-Shiite divide in the Syrian civil war. Uh, it is an interesting development. It's a throwback, uh, in a way, to the Iran-Iraq war of 1980 to 1988, uh, we should watch this with interest. I have never seen a U.S. national security interest to get involved in the Syrian civil war. I do not see one today. Uh, for the time being, we would like to make sure that it doesn't uh, escalate beyond the borders, whether that's into Lebanon or into Turkey. Uh, but I don't, do not see a role for the United States. Uh, well, and at the same time, you have Russia pounding their chests and warning NATO to stay out of Syria. There's been some conversation there at NATO headquarters. They may have to go in, intercede between the opposition and Bashar Assad's forces. Uh, but Russia says to NATO, stay out of Syria. They're getting pretty tough. Hillary Clinton, when she took over as Secretary of State, you know, made very, very famously presented this big button to the, to the Russians saying reset. In fact, it didn't say they reset. It was mistranslated. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it is not working. We have a resurgent Russia. We have a resurgent Soviet Union-style Russia uh, coming at us under Vladimir Putin. When you think about uh, Iran, let me go back there and we conclude our conversation with this. There are experts now saying that the Iranian military is stuck in the past. In other words, they have this uh, technology for developing a nuclear weapon of mass destruction, but otherwise they're really way years behind. Well, I, I think that's a, um, uh, I, I wouldn't entirely uh, agree with that. I think the, the Iranians have made great strides with their missile technology. They have a, a wide range of different missiles. They've been focusing on anti-shipping missiles. They're working with the Chinese, for example, to develop a uh, ground-launched uh, ballistic missile that can attack a moving aircraft carrier. And they retarget the missile in the air uh, using an airborne uh, radar, like an AWACS-type uh, aircraft. Uh, the Chinese have already successfully demonstrated this. Uh, it's a, an alarming new capability. Our, our Navy is, is not at all happy to see uh, that the Iranians have that. Uh, and so they've been focusing their efforts not on rebuilding tank forces or rebuilding their conventional air force, but they've been building up unconventional forces and missile forces. So I wouldn't say that the, they're stuck in the past per se. Their conventional forces have not really been modernized. Uh, but they are building new forces, unconventional forces, focusing on asymmetrical attacks so they can, uh, uh, if you wish, hit the United States in the ankle, in our Achilles heel, uh, while we are, are facing them uh, uh, frontally on the battlefield. Yes, and indeed, Iran, according to Bible prophecy, 
is going to be a major player in the end of times, and that would have to include their military capabilities as well. Ken Timmerman from the Washington, D.C. area giving us a look at geopolitical activities happening around the world, details behind the headlines. Ken, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll talk again real soon. Thank you so much, Jimmy, and God bless. Thank you very much, Ken. We're going to take a break. When we come back, David Dolan standing by to give us a Middle East news update. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. We're here in Atlanta, Georgia. We're in transition. We're on our way to Destin, Florida. We'll be there Sunday evening, 5 o'clock, at the Embassy Suites Hotel in the Ballroom. It's one of those Worldview Weekend Conferences with Brannon House. We're going to have a great, great time. People from all over the countryside, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, we're going to be meeting together for this fantastic conference. I'll be speaking, Brandon will be speaking, giving you information about a worldview that's based upon biblical truth. Of course, I will be looking towards prophetic truth with that Bible understanding of what's happening in our world. We do that right here on Prophecy Today as well. We use our broadcast partners to give us details behind the political activities going on, and we do that in light of the prophetic scenario found in God's Word. I'll take a look at the book a bit later right here on the broadcast and pull this all together. 
the man who covers the Middle East for us. He's been doing that for everybody, many, many people. CBS Radio, for example, he was longtime correspondent for CBS in Jerusalem, but he's been a stringer. That's a journalist that works with a lot of different agencies. But he's been helping us out and giving us a Middle East news update for a number of years now, and we're so grateful uh, for David Dolan being able to do that. David, uh, let's get right into the conversation because there are a lot of items I want to cover. Number one, yesterday, Friday, in Amman, Jordan, the Muslim Brotherhood had put together a protest against the monarchy, against King Abdullah. King Abdullah brought the parliament down. He's going to new elections. But now the Muslim Brotherhood is getting their followers there in Jordan to try to boycott that election. And I think actually, am I correct, David, they would like to overthrow the monarchy and come to power themselves there in Jordan. Oh, no doubt about it, Jimmy. That's been a goal that um, they've had for many, many years. And in uh, Jordan itself, um, many people actually use the term Hamas. Uh, for the Muslim Brotherhood movement there, because, of course, as you know, the Hamas movement, the Palestinian Hamas movement, came out of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood movement. Uh, that was its parent. Uh, they helped, uh, the Egyptians helped the Gaza Strip Palestinians form that uh, new group uh, in 1988. And um, most of the Jordanians uh, who are followers of the Muslim Brothers are uh, also of Palestinian extraction. So many of them use the term Hamas, but certainly they would like to overthrow the pro-Western monarchy, uh, bring in a Muslim fundamentalist state there like they've done in the Gaza Strip, like they are doing right now in Egypt and Tunisia and some other countries. And I've been saying for some years, Jimmy, that this is the key thing to watch for, I believe, uh, in the Middle East in the coming years, because uh, if and when and I believe biblical prophecy, that's another topic, of course, but I believe it does indicate that Jordan will swing against Israel and against the West at some point. Um, that will be a major, a major uh, turning point, because even though Egypt was a major point, being the largest Arab country uh, by far, and the cultural center of the Arab world, so that was a very important move that the brothers took over there, but Jordan, of course, has by far the longest border with Israel. And uh, you know, you've been on my roof in Jerusalem. I can see Amman, uh, the capital of Jordan, from my roof. It's just 35 miles away uh, across the Jordan Valley. Uh, the lights at night, I can see the skyscrapers in the day uh, at certain times when the weather's right. So uh, if that were to fall to the, the Hamas Muslim Brotherhood, plan, it would be a real game changer in the region and uh, certainly would result in all sorts of upheaval. Well, and the demographics of Jordan, you alluded to it just a moment ago, how the Palestinian culture was a part of the Muslim Brotherhood. They refer to it, as you said, Hamas, and you're probably the expert on Hamas since you really started writing about them over 20 years ago before anybody else was. But uh, there's about, what, 70, 75% of the population of Jordan is actually Palestinians, and the king He's a Hashemite. He's from Saudi Arabia, so he's got a real problem even with the demographics, much less putting aside the Muslim Brotherhood and their desires. Well, that's right, and he's also, um, and his father before him, King Hussein, um, been forced in a way to host a lot of foreigners 
uh, in their little country. It's uh, not that big geographically. It's bigger than Israel, but not a lot bigger. Its population is about half the size of Israel. So it's a small country, and yet they've got tens of thousands of Syrians, uh, refugees now pouring in, and before that there were uh, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis came in. Many of them later left, but amongst those people, both the Iraqis and the Syrians, uh, the Jordanians know, the officials know, that some of those people coming in are not really refugees. They're Muslim fundamentalists who are coming in to back, to add weight to the local uh, Muslim fundamentalist movement that, that's indigenous there. So um, that's another problem that's uh, growing and uh, very, very threatening to the uh, Hashemite kingdom there. This week, there was a speech made by Robert Gates. He was the former Secretary of Defense under both the Bush administration and the Obama administration. And he said it would be catastrophic for Israel to do a preemptive strike on Iran. And in fact, he then passed along this message. He said, no blank check for Israel on Iran. Now, this is a, a bit concerning, I'm sure, to the Israeli leadership. It is, but it's uh, it's not the first time they've heard this from um, from Gates. Actually, he's made similar comments in the past, and and several other uh, former intelligence officials, former uh, or sitting politicians, uh, have said uh, such things. And of course, <clears throat> this debate goes on inside Israel, and you have some Israelis, as you'll recall, some Israeli intelligence officials, former ones and uh, political leaders that also are, are against such a strike, saying it won't be effective, it will only embolden uh, the other side. And uh, again, the Netanyahu administration in Israel knows this. Uh, they know that it's an extremely risky uh, uh, prospect to take on uh, a, a nuclear project in a country that's 50 times the size of Israel and, uh, uh, and oil power and all these sorts of things. And yet, on the other end, we have the bottom line of the Iranian leaders continuing to state quite openly that Israel will soon be wiped out and that uh, they are developing, that they are enriching uranium. That's not a secret. So, as, as Netanyahu pointed out, the UN, it's the UN's Atomic Energy Agency that's detailed this. And the, the, we know for a fact that they are enriching uranium beyond what they originally promised to do, which was 3% level. They're going up to 20 now. And it's just a small jump to nuclear weapons-grade uranium. So, um, you know, Netanyahu, of course, is watching this and listening to what world leaders are saying and, and taking into consideration, I'm certain, their opinions and the opinions in his own country. But in the end, he's responsible for the existence, if you will, of his people, the continuing existence, their well-being, uh, uh, and in this case, the fact that they'll be alive even, you know. So uh, he's calculating all those things, and he'll take the decision that he feels he has to take. Uh, but it does appear from his speech at the U.N., as we discussed last week, that he's hinting that it wouldn't be before the U.S. election, but probably sometime uh, next spring. Uh, so maybe not imminent, but uh, if the United States and others don't do it, I, I don't see that Israel cannot uh, can just sit on its hands. They they cannot allow Iran to have a nuclear bomb. They've said that openly. President has said we won't allow it either. So we'll just see what if that's uh, really the feelings of the United States or not. David, during the Feast of Tabernacles, many Jews wanted to go up onto the Temple Mount. Uh, that is a part of what the Lord calls for in the Bible. 
Howbeit, up there, the Muslims started throwing stones at the security people, started going after those Jews that were up there. Is this a inkling of things to come, like a, a next intifada of some type? It could well be. Um, we certainly are talking about, as you know, the most disputed uh, piece of ground on Earth, and uh, there's no other city, no other place in the world that has three different religions uh, claiming it as a, a holy site for them and as a very important uh, special place. So you have uh, a unique situation there and uh, a lot of tension, a lot of clashes over the years uh, because of, of these uh, conflicting claims. And, of course, the main problem is that the uh, Muslims, uh, who were the last uh, religious power, as it were, to take control of the Temple Mount until... Uh, Israel's rebirth, uh, well, really Israel's uh, conquest of the uh, old city in 1967. So they had it for a thousand years apart from the Crusades, Crusaders being there for a short period of time, and they want it back, and uh, they think that validates Islam's claim to being the final uh, revelation of truth and Muhammad being the greatest prophet, etc. So they're never going to calm down. And, and, of course, on the other side, Orthodox Jews recall that, hey, 3,000 years ago already we had a temple there, and uh, this is originally our holy site, and it still is, and, and we want to be able to pray there. So those tensions are constantly there, and, and, and uh, could well be a spark for another a round of, uh, of a Palestinian uprising. David Dolan, the man who gives us our Middle East news update, he has insight developed over many years of experience as a journalist in Jerusalem. David, thank you so much, my good friend. Talk again next week. You're welcome, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break right here on Prophecy Today. Stand by. I have an interview from Hebron, the oldest Jewish community in the world. David Wilder, it's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung, I'm here in Atlanta, Georgia. We're on our way down to Destin, Florida. We're going to be down there in a big conference with Brandon House, a Worldview Weekend conference. And I'll be speaking on prophetic themes from the Word of God. The ancient Jewish prophets laid out for us the future. I'll be going back to these Old Testament prophets to look at what they had to say and see how it fits into the times in which we're living today. If you're in that area, love to have you come and join us. It's Sunday night there in Destin, Florida. 
Okay, let's uh, continue. As I promised, we're going to have David Wilder. He is from the first Jewish community in the history of the world, established some 4,000 years ago. I want to get into that history with David in just a moment. I want to remind you, refresh your thinking about Hevron and its importance. Now, you may hear me pronouncing it Hevron, H-E-V-R-O-N. You may spell it, and in the South, they have a bunch of cities named Hebron, H-E-B-R-O-N. But the B has a V sound in Hebrew, for that's the purpose for which that we are using that terminology. David, I read an article. David Wilder is the spokesperson for this Jewish community in Hebron. And David, as I was saying, I read an article that thousands came in to celebrate Feast of Tabernacles into Hebron. I would imagine that was some kind of experience. Why did they come to Hebron? I know the Feast of Tabernacles. They live in their sukkahs in their homes. They celebrate the seven-day feast. But what brought them into Hebron? What was the importance and the reason behind coming to Hebron? Well, Jimmy, um, actually, it wasn't thousands. It was tens of thousands, because uh, yesterday uh, we had about uh, 40,000 people here, and the day before, 20,000, and today, I don't have numbers, but I would imagine that today we have between five to 10,000. So, you know, we're going up on, on so far, on about 70,000 people in Hebron uh, this week, uh, and that's, that, that really is an amazing number. Um, why do people come to Hebron? For any number of reasons. First of all, uh, it's a time when people can come to uh, see the holy places here, see the tomb of the patriarchs, where even Sarah buried. Uh, it's also a time when one of the uh, very special rooms at that site, which is usually closed off to us, is open. Uh, the Isaac Hall, the memorial for Isaac and Rebecca, uh, that's only open to uh, uh, Jews uh, 10 days a year. And so people come in for that. And uh, also we have a big music festival. We had a big music festival here, and uh, we had a very, very popular uh, Hasidic singer here, and uh, that brought in tens of thousands of people. And it's been, uh, it's been quite an amazing week. I would imagine with all of that activity going on, there was great celebration for the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, let's drop back just a moment. People are eavesdropping on this conversation. They may not realize the history of Hebron. Now, you were talking about the burial place for Isaac and Rebekah. I'll get to that in a moment. But before that, Abraham came in out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he established a Jewish community about 4,000 years ago there, did he not? That's correct. Uh, it's written that Abraham came and he settled in Hebron. He lived here for, for uh, several decades. And uh, this was actually the first Jewish city in the land of Israel. And Jews have lived here almost uh, uh, since then, you know, continuously. There are little breaks that we know of here and there, but for the most part, Jews have always been here. Uh, of course, King David began his rule here later on. And, uh, and when I tour with people, as I've done with you in the past, we go to see all of these sites where our illustrious uh, forefathers from all of the generations uh, uh, lived here in the city. Now talk to me about the burial place. You're talking about the burial for Isaac and Rebekah. Abraham has a burial place there as well, and so does Jacob, do they not? Yes, sir. Uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Sarah, Beck, and Leah are all buried in a cave all the way underneath the building that we're able to go into. The building itself is 2,000 years old. It was built by Herod uh, on top of the actual caves. And in terms of the authenticity of the site, uh, as far as I know, there are no archaeologists or historians that debate the fact 
that this is the actual site that we read about in the Bible, where Abraham went out and bought a cave for 400 silver shekels from Ephron the Hittite. That's today valued about $700,000. He bought a field, and he bought that cave, and that's where he buried Sarah, and that's where he was buried. And that site has uh, remained as a, a monument and a landmark, uh, not only for Jews, but for people of all religions from all around the world uh, to come visit, a place to worship, and a place to identify with the very foundations of monotheism. You know, I understand, you understand, everybody does, that uh, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is the most sacred piece of real estate to the Jewish people. But uh, I also have to remind everybody, Hebron, the burial site for the patriarchs, is number two in importance as it relates to special sites for the Jewish people, isn't it? That's correct. Uh, and, of course, it's a site that precedes, uh, precedes Jerusalem. We, we started in Hebron, and we worked our way up to Jerusalem. Uh, but it is, it is quite a holy site, uh, and, uh, and we see the, the, the magnetism of the site it draws so many people here. Uh, as we're seeing this week, and as we're seeing uh, uh, every year, we get hundreds of thousands of people that come to visit this uh, because it's, it is such a, uh, a very, very significant spiritual place. Well, we've talked about the history, David, of Hebron, the original community for Jewish people in the land of Israel, dating back to Abraham 4,000 years plus years ago, and uh, also the burial site for the patriarchs there later on. But talk to me about somewhat modern-day history. Just back up and jump in someplace and tell me from that point on what's been going on in Hebron and the fact that the Jewish people are living there today. <laughs> you talk to me about modern history starting 4,000 years ago. Uh, <laughs> usually when I talk about modern history these days, I start in the year 1540, when Jews who had been exiled from Spain in, 15, in 1492 came to live in the city. Uh, and lived here uh, continuously until the 1920s. In 1929, there was a massacre here. There were riots. Uh, 67 Jews were slaughtered, and the survivors were expelled. We came back to Hebron after the Six-Day War in 1967, started to repopulate the city, to relive here in 1968. The actual community where I live today was reestablished in, in 1979 and 1980. Today we live here in four neighborhoods in the city itself. Uh, there are about 90 families. There are over 300 children here. There's the Yeshiva, a Torah Academy of 350 men that study there. <clears throat> so we're coming up today on, on some, I don't know, 850, 900 Jews that live in the city itself. In the uh, outskirts of the city is a community called Kiryat Arba, uh, where there are about 7,500 people. So we're coming up on 10,000 people in this area itself today. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it, it, it's always been there. There, there are always problems here. There are people that don't want us here. There are people that are trying to get us out. They're trying to prevent us from growing and expanding. Uh, but we see the power of this site, not because of the people that are here, but because of the significance of the place itself and the history behind it and the the, the spiritual significance of the site. And it draws people in. Uh, and we have uh, we have tremendous support around the world. We have international support uh, from people, again, of all religions. Isn't that a very interesting fact? Well, talk to me about those in opposition to the Jewish people living there. Would that be the Palestinian people you're talking about? Well, we have a number of different fronts that we have to deal with. Of course, we have the Arabs that don't want us here, but again, 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 the Arabs don't want us anywhere in Israel, whether it be Hebron or Jerusalem 
or Tel Aviv or Haifa or Be'er Sheva. As far as, far as they're concerned, uh, our existence here and our presence here is totally illegitimate, uh, and uh, that is something that we've had to deal with for, for centuries. Uh, unfortunately, there, there's opposition from, from other parts of other populations. We have opposition, of course, from people in the European Union who, who fund the Arabs here, <coughs> who fund them and, and uh, so that they can build and they can renovate and bring in more people. And uh, some of that money we, we know is also used to try to, to purchase weapons that they can use against us. Uh, of course, the people in the White House today, which we're hoping will very quickly, very soon change, uh, aren't very pleased with the fact they're Jews in Hebron. We also deal with, uh, with the Israeli left, which is bolstered by anarchists and left-wing organizations from around the world, uh, who also do whatever they possibly can to try to besmirch us, to try to uh, 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 blacken our names and uh, present us as, uh, as evil and as extremists and as violent, uh, in order to try to persuade the Israeli public to uh, uh, rid themselves of this of this community, uh, however, as we we've seen this week, uh, their attempts to to uh, to try to, to to get us out aren't working. Uh, to the contrary, more and more people are coming in here, and despite uh, present hardships, we've overcome hardships before, and I'm sure that uh, those that we have today will overcome, and uh, we'll continue to grow and thrive here. Well, those hardships and opposition seem pretty tough and pretty intense at this time. Do you guys, the community of about eight or 900 people there in the heart of Hebron itself, do you have any plan on leaving? Look, you know, everything is also always relative. It depends how you look at it and what you compare it to. Uh, back uh, uh, 12 years ago during the uh, what we call the Second Intifada or the Oslo War, uh, we were shot at from the hills that surround us. Uh, we went through periods of, of terrible terror attacks, both in the city itself and in the ro- on the roads leading both uh, north to Jerusalem and going south towards Beersheba. Uh, and that was a lot worse than it is today. Uh, we were able to overcome that, and, and at that time nobody left uh, Hebron. None of the people that lived here left the city. Uh, and today also, not only don't we have any plans to leave, we have plans to bring in more people and to continue to grow. Uh, uh, the left here uh, uses all sorts of uh, judicial influence to try to uh, prevent that from happening. But then again, um, we've been around, not me, but the Hebron and the, the importance of Hebron has been around a, around a lot longer than the people that are trying to hurt us. Uh, and, and we have no doubt that uh, with a little bit more patience, things will be okay. You know, uh, again, when one looks at things in perspective, uh, we were in exile for 2,000 years, and now we're back here. Uh, there were Jews that, you know, that died saying next year in Jerusalem. Uh, but today we're in Israel and we're in Jerusalem. Uh, I think the hardships that we have to deal with today are nowhere near as great as the ones that we had to face uh, over 2,000 years. And the problems that we have, uh, uh, we will see, uh, find solutions to, whether it'll be uh, now or for my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. Uh, but... Uh, We've, we face things much more difficult than the, the obstacles we have in front of us today. Yeah, and God's Word says you'll be there for a long time yet to come. I've enjoyed my travels out to Hebron, hosted by David Wilder, spokesperson for the Jewish community there, and the oldest Jewish community in the history of the world. David, thank you so much for sharing. It sounded like that uh, there was a great celebration that went on through out to the days of Feast of Tabernacles. And appreciate you reporting to us and giving us some history 
on this unique Jewish city. Well, only one like it in all of the world. Thank you, David. We'll talk again real soon. Thanks, Jimmy. It's always a pleasure. Shalom, shalom. What an interesting history lesson on the city of Hebron. It's one of the most unique Jewish cities in all the world. In fact, it's, as we were told by David Wilder, the oldest city in the history of the world. Abraham, he established this Jewish community some 4,000 years ago. Well, we have another interesting conversation that I want you to pay close attention to. We're talking with Rabbi Yoel Karen. He's becoming somewhat of a regular member of our broadcast team, one of our broadcast partners. He's in Jerusalem. And Rabbi, we've just got to talk about what took place earlier in the week, the priestly blessings at the Western Wall Plaza. Wow, that does sound like an exciting event that took place. Describe it. What happened? How many people were there? What did take place? Literally, when, when, when this happens, it's almost impossible to move throughout the old city of Jerusalem. I mean, all the way back to the Jaffa Gate, it starts the, the, the foot traffic. It's really tight. The closer you get, get into the Jewish quarter, you can barely move. And then when you get down to the Western Wall Plaza, it's just sort of a sea of humanity. And it's just, there's nothing quite like it. And, of, of course, what we're talking about here is the blessing that, that God commanded the, the priests, the Kohanim, the sons of, of the, the direct physical descendants of, of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And these are the priests who served in the temple, and they maintain very scrupulously, they maintain their lineage, and it's passed on father to son. And so they're still with us today, the, the Kohanim and what are called the Levites, the Levites, the members of the tribe of, of Levi, of Levi, are also with us today. But the priests, it's their job to come and to bless the people. They're commanded to do this, a direct commandment in the Torah, to bless the people in God's name with a threefold blessing. And the, 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 the Levites, pretty much the only job they have left today with no temple is they wash the hands of the priests before they raise up their hands to bless the people. And so at the three, the three pilgrimage festivals where we spoke about last time, all three of these festivals, all of the priests, thousands of them, thousands upon thousands of them, will descend onto Jerusalem, and they'll come and they'll stand in front of the Western Wall, God willing, one day it will be on top of the Temple Mount they'll be doing this, and I have been part of the priestly blessing on the Temple Mount, but only with a few priests. Um, but they come in, they, they mass up in front of the Western Wall, and they spread their hands out towards the people, and they bless them in God's name. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to see. Well, this was not only for the Jews gathered there at the Western Wall Plaza, but as I understand it, there was a web camera uh, for the Internet focused on this priestly blessing, and Jews and anybody else who wanted to watch it could watch from around the world watching all these festivities unfold. Absolutely. There are always there are several of these cameras that are constantly trained on the Western Wall, and you can at any time of the day, day or night, you can go and see what's going on at the Western Wall. And it's been my experience that no matter what time it is, no matter how bad the weather, there's always going to be someone there. Well, when these priestly blessings are pronounced, actually, is it directly from the Word of God, from the Bible, that they're making these statements? Uh, how does that all unfold? Exactly. It's, it's, these are, these are specific, this is, like I said, it's a specific commandment given in the Torah, and God tells the priests, the sons of Aaron, 
to, to bless the people and to place his name upon them. And the actual, the text is given in there. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. His entire, his entire blessing is there. It's, uh, it, and it's, it's something that's done weekly here in the synagogues, but to see them come together and, and bless the people. And as, as God says, they shall place my name upon the people. It's, it's wonderful to be there, and for, for everyone involved, for Jews, for Christians, everyone to stand there and receive that blessing. You brought to my attention just now something very interesting that I didn't realize before. They actually do this every single week in the synagogues. Is that correct? Every single day. Every single day in the land of Israel. Outside of Israel, it's not so much done. It's only done during the high holiday services, the three pilgrimage festivals. But here in the land of Israel, it's done every single day. So then there would be a man qualified to be a priest according to Jewish law and history, and he would go into the synagogue, bless the Jewish people, maybe in that synagogue, or does that reach out to the world as well? What happens is the the priest, the Kohen, the son of Aaron, will come up to the front of the synagogue. He will face the the ark where the Torah is held, where the Torah scroll is held. He'll give a blessing thanking God for commanding him to bless the people of Israel in love. And then he'll turn and spread his hands out towards the congregation. And he makes with his hands, he spreads his hands out in the old, the, the way Mr. Spock did his hands on Star Trek. That's actually where Leonard Nimoy got this. He, he, he saw this as a child in the synagogue. And he makes this sign with his hands in the shape of the Jewish letters, Kim, which stands for Shalom, for peace, for blessing the people with peace. Anyone who is standing in front of him counts and is under that blessing. And we, that's why everyone is very careful to come and they stand in front of the priest to get the blessing. Now, why do they do that in the synagogue on a daily basis and then only during the pilgrim feast of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles uh, for the area of the Temple Mount? Well, it's one of, the, it's one of those things that... It was a custom to always do it every day for, for the, for the Kohanim to get up and to bless the people. And then during the exile, somehow it sort of fell into disuse, and it was only done at certain times of the year, the most important times of the year, the pilgrimage festivals. Once we came back to the land of Israel, the custom began to spread again and to be done on a daily basis. And so, but they still like to maintain this thing of everyone getting together three times a year to bless the entire nation. When you have most, a, a good number of hundreds of thousands of Jews together. It's, a good, it's just a, a good thing to, to do it while they're there. As I remember reading in the Old Testament and the items in the Word of God pertaining to the activities at the temple, I seem to remember that there would be about 28,000 priests that would actually operate the temple. King David, of course, set up different courses when they would serve at the temple. They weren't all there every single day of the year, but on the high holy days, they would come, of course, to the temple to do their duties. Is 28,000, is that about the number that uh, say that they are priests qualified to serve in the temple? There are, there are probably many more than that today. I mean, there, were, there, there are many, 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 many thousands. I don't, I don't have an exact number, but I could, I could probably find it pretty easily, but I'm, I'm sure it's well over 28,000. Now, when you say that then, and you brought something out as well that uh, I was interested in hearing. You say that this has been passed down from father to son by tradition. I know when the temple was destroyed, the genealogies 
there back in 70 AD destroyed. But now they have come to this conclusion by uh, being able to pass it down from father to son. Is that correct? Well, that's really that's, that's always the way it was done. The only, the only reason anyone knows that they are a, a priest today is because his father told him. And that's really the only re- way he knows anything. We did lose. When the temple was destroyed, we lost a lot of genealogical records. Not all of them. There are a few still out there. But the vast majority were destroyed. These were kept in the temple for the purpose of marriages and knowing who could marry whom and who couldn't marry whom and things like that to, to be able to keep the priestly lines pure. Once the temple was destroyed, this was passed on strictly by a father telling his son, you are a boy, you are a descendant of Aaron, just as I am, and my father before me and his father before him. And the, and the fathers, they teach their sons how to perform the blessings, how to do everything, all of the special rules that are upon priests. They can't go into graveyards, be in the same room as a dead body. There are a lot of, a lot of strictures that are placed upon them as descendants of Aaron. Even though there's not a temple, and the ritual impurity doesn't really disqualify them from anything because they're not doing the sacrifices and their different temple duties, they, they still maintain these traditions so they don't forget them. So recently, in the last few decades, we've had an amazing confirmation of this through DNA. There was one of these priests, he's sitting in the synagogue, and he noticed that another priest is called up to read from the Torah. And he thinks to himself, you know, I'm fairly light-skinned from a, a family, from, from a European background. This fellow that just got called up was a Moroccan, more dark-skinned, a little bit more Middle Eastern-looking. He says, we look completely different. He says, but if the tradition is correct, we should be very, very closely related. And he just happened to be a geneticist. I believe he's at the, with the University of Arizona. A lot of this work was also done in Israel. They began to take a sampling of these people who have a tradition that they are descended from the priests. And lo and behold, they are almost all, all of them are related. And it turns out they're all descended from one single male progenitor about 30, about 3,000 years ago. And any, it's a great testament to the fidelity of, of the Jewish women throughout the years. That all of these people, they really are the sons of the, the person who came before them. And uh, there was no infidelity going on, and they are, they are all extremely closely related, and they share one common genetic marker called, it's now it's called the Cohen modal haplotype. Very interesting report uh, from Rabbi Yoel Karen. Well, now, of course, you mentioned that when the temple is standing on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, these priestly blessings will be performed there actually on the Temple Mount. You said you've been up there with a couple of priests who gave the blessings up there. I guess they were doing it when none of the Muslim leaders up there were looking. But uh, in preparation for all of that to happen, they have to have the temple up. And, of course, uh, we do know that that's coming very close to happening, do we not? Absolutely. That's, that's what we're looking for. And we just, we, we've got to get in with God's help and get our hands dirty and make it happen. That has to be done for these actual priestly blessings to be official there up on the Temple Mount. Well, the thousands that gathered there, I'm sure, at the Western Wall on, uh, during the time of Feast of Tabernacles, I'm sure they were blessed by what was going on. And it's just, is it not evidence, in your opinion, of how we are moving into the area of uh, 
biblical prophecy being fulfilled. The word of God, the ancient Jewish prophets say there will be a temple. Zechariah said it will be built on the Temple Mount. Uh, so much in God's prophetic word from the ancient Jewish prophets to tell us about it. This is just a foretaste of things to come, is it not? Absolutely. We can see it. We can touch it. We can feel it. It's here every day. Every day it's getting stronger and stronger. And and one day soon, God willing, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Wow. Amen and amen. Always, I'm brought to the point that I have to say amen to what the rabbi says. That is going to be fulfilled. The prophetic word of God will absolutely be fulfilled in the future. Rabbi, thank you for this report. Uh, This is very interesting to those of us who are not Jewish, and it's uh, so interesting to watch from afar what is happening as everything is being prepared for what the Lord wants to happen. Thank you, my good friend. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me. Wow, what a fantastic conversation with Rabbi Yoel Karen about the priestly blessings at the Western Wall Plaza there in the city of Jerusalem, right next to the Temple Mount. Well, you can listen to that again if you'd like to. Go to prophecytoday.com, P-T-R-N, Prophecy Today Radio Network, and you can listen to all the conversations that we have with all of our broadcast partners right here on Prophecy Today. This is a way you can get information out to your friends as well. I want to remind you that upcoming in just a moment, I'm going to have a conversation with one of our other broadcast partners, Dr. Rob Congdon. Dr. Congdon covers the European Union for us, but this time we're going to talk about how the European Union is stage setting for the revived Roman Empire. We're in transition. We're on our way to Destin, Florida. We'll be there Sunday evening, 5 o'clock, at the Embassy Suites Hotel in the Ballroom. It's one of those Worldview Weekend conferences with Brannon House. We're going to have a great, great time. People from all over the countryside, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, we're going to be meeting together for this fantastic conference. I'll be speaking Brandon will be speaking, giving you information about a worldview that's based upon biblical truth. Of course, I will be looking towards prophetic truth with that Bible understanding of what's happening in our world. We do that right here on Prophecy Today as well. We use our broadcast partners to give us details behind the political activities going on, and we do that in light of the prophetic scenario found in God's Word. I'll take a look at the book a bit later right here on the broadcast and pull this all together. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. In this segment, we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Rob Congdon. Rob covers the European Union for us, but this has been a slow week news-wise, and we're going to talk about how the European Union basically is quickly becoming the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. You don't want to miss that conversation. It's upcoming in just a moment. And let me give you the poll question at our website, prophecytoday.com. You can go there. It's on the left-hand side of our home page. And we'd love to have you respond to our poll question. This gives us an idea of how you think about the events in Bible prophecy and geopolitical activities in our world. Here's the poll question for this week. With thousands of Christians 
from all over the world gathering in Jerusalem for the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, as foretold in Zechariah chapter 14, could this be a precursor to the command from the Lord for all peoples to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with the Jewish people in Jerusalem as called for in Bible prophecy. Love to hear your response to our poll question. Go to our website, prophecytoday.com, and you'll be able to answer that poll question. By the way, I have devos there, devotions for every day's time with the Lord. If you'd like to look at it from the perspective of prophetic passages in Scripture with my prophetic perspective. You can get that on our website, prophecytoday.com, and many other things, information about where we're going to be. We're going to Israel. We've got a tour taking off in just a couple of days, but in the spring we're going. If you'd like to go in the spring, that's a beautiful time. You can go to our website, go to Joshua Travel, have a cruise, and I do think that you could get on the cruise with us right now. It's at the end of October. We're going into Italy. We'll be in Rome. Then we're going to Turkey, and we'll be at F and we'll go into Greece at Athens. I'll be teaching in all the locations. It's a wonderful way to visit these lands and these special cities. Go to our website, find out about the cruise. And I must tell you about PASS. Say you haven't heard about PASS? Well, let me tell you what it is. It's a prophetic army of senior saints. We introduced this this last week up at Word of Life. I was speaking to the Senior Saints Conference there, and we told the people about a fact that I wanted to raise an army of senior citizens who would learn Bible prophecy, be capable of teaching Bible prophecy, and start teaching it to their children, their grandchildren, uh, their great-grandchildren, their neighbors in their Sunday school class, so we could reach this generation and the next generation with the fact that Jesus Christ is coming. Go to our website. Website, you can find out more information about it. And one more thing, I want to tell you again about the big conference, the Worldview Weekend Conference in Destin, Florida, Embassy Suites Hotel in the Ballroom, 5 o'clock on Sunday evening. Right now, we bring to these microphones a broadcast partner par excellence. He's with us each and every week. I'm talking about Dr. Rob Congdon, and he's going to give us a report on the European Union and actually the continent of Europe as well. How do these two entities play in to the end-time scenario that can be found in Bible prophecy? Well, that's why we have our discussions right here on Prophecy Today. Rob, not a big news week, so I thought we'd spend some time discussing together uh, the intricacies of how the European Union seems to be, at least from afar, looks like to be the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. That is a prophetic term from the book of Daniel and chapter 7 in particular, when the old Roman Empire will come back to power and play a very key role during the seven-year tribulation period. So uh, let's get it underway. And in fact, let's start with that question right there. Why do you and I, and I know I do, but you can explain for our listeners as well, why do you say that the European Union may well be at least the beginning infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire? Well, I think there's probably two prime reasons. Uh, one is the countries involved in the European Union. There are 27 countries that are now members of it. All of them trace their history back to the ancient Roman Empire. In fact, you can almost draw a continuous line of uh, being parts of empires from the Roman days right to the European Union. So we have, a, a, if you will, a geographic tie of these countries back to the Union. 
Uh, in addition, you have the very unique form of the government of the European Union, which Daniel describes one day will be a diverse government. He says the final empire in the book of Daniel. Diverse meaning unique in history, something that's never existed before. Uh, the European Union government is a government what is called supranational. It's a group of 27 men and women who are not elected. They decide what happens for the European Union through their discussions and in their internal discussions. There is no voting for them. There is no check and balance of them. It's merely a, a group that of commissioners, they're called, that run the, the government. So we have a government that is unique in history, that matches Daniel, and we have a geographic relationship to the ancient Roman Empire as well. Well, and have I not heard you tell me about, for example, one of the leaders in Italy, I think the terminology was he was appointed a senator for life. That seems to have quite a bit of an interesting ring between the old Roman Empire and the revived Roman Empire. Oh, absolutely. It's very interesting. The current prime minister of Italy, now he's an appointed person. Uh, in other words, he's not voted in. He was appointed by the president of Italy as prime minister, this gentleman, Mario Monti. He was just a few uh, days before he was made prime minister, he was voted senator for life. Now, that, that's a term right out of the ancient Roman Empire, if you will. Uh, he is a senator. He's a member of the Senate. Uh, only five men are allowed to hold this unique position of senator for life at a time. So that means he will be in the Senate for his life or unless he decides to retire. So he has a unique title, if you will, that goes back to the Roman Empire. Interestingly, he also has served on that commission that I've just referred to, this unique body of 27 men and women who basically rule the European Union. He has served many positions in there in the uh, economic area and in other areas uh, of the European Union. His background as such, which is a requirement to be any kind of leader in the EU, he is Roman Catholic, a strong practicing Roman Catholic, which, again, uh, gives the ties, if you will, back to Rome and to its point. The final thing, and I, I say this cautiously because I, I realize that many people like to run with conspiracies, but significantly, uh, Mario Monte is a member of the key think tank groups of Europe. Uh, and some of those people, listeners will know, they've heard of the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg Group, these are think tanks. And interestingly, he's founded a think tank called the Bruegel, which ties very quickly to a famous artist who actually designed the European Union, uh, gave the prototype for the European Union buildings, which ties it to Babel and the Roman Empire. So we have a major leader in Europe today, very involved in the financial problems of Europe, who holds a unique title that sounds like a Roman Empire title of old. So the ties get very strong as you look at the European Union and to what once was the, European, uh, the Roman Empire. And it looks to me, indeed, after what I've just heard you say, as if the stage is set for that revival of the old Roman Empire. Let's step back just a moment for our listeners 
and talk about the European Union itself. Now, I don't believe that it started out with the title European Union. If I'm correct, I believe it was the Treaty of Rome that was signed on March the 25th, 1957, there on the hills of Rome, that really got this ball rolling. Uh, that would be what you would call the formal beginning, but if you look at the history of the, uh, if you want to call it the embryonic stages of the European Union, it began in 1918 with the League of Nations. Uh, one of the key people that were there uh, was there, was a founder of it, and he, he worked uh, behind the scenes, very quietly behind the scenes. He developed what became what was called the Coal Commission dealing with coal and shipping. Uh, that was six nations. Out of those six nations, they then advanced to form what is most people still you refer to, the common market, which we've all heard of, and now has developed in, after a time of almost 50 years now, has developed into the European Union. Uh, there has been a steady progression from 1918 to this point to define the European Union as an empire and lead it to a, a significant power, not just economics, but politically. If you really want to look at history, you go back to Dati, who's, I believe, I'm saying this is from memory, 13th century. He proposed the whole idea. So men have always been looking for this union of Europe that would eventually be the world power. And, of course, what we see today in the European Union, the current leaders are talking about the same progression. They envision incorporating many more countries. When they discuss what countries they'd like to bring in, they are only countries that have some kind of ancestry, if you will, to those in the Roman Empire. So it's, it's been an ongoing movement. Uh, the real success, just as you said, was with the Treaty of Rome. That's what really pulled it together and put it on the world stage but it's been progressing ever since more and more toward our true world empire. I know that when President Sarkozy was president of France, he uh, put together the Mediterranean Union, 17 additional states. Uh, 16 of those were Islamic states on the coast of the Mediterranean, and then the one Israeli state, Israel, the Jewish state. That makes 44 states. How in the world, if we're looking at current events, fitting into the scenario for Bible prophecy in Daniel, for example, how do we get 44 states down to 10, like the 10 toes of Daniel 2, the 10 horns of Daniel 7? Well, uh, there are ways to do it. I think we should note, first of all, that Mediterranean Union is also remnants of the Roman Empire. It's the same countries that once were in the Roman Empire. So there would be 44 but as the European Union has been discussing strongly in the last two years, it, it doesn't work with 27 leaders and this supranational commission, that they'll have to reduce it to make it more effective with less inertia, in other words, so it can make decisions quicker and faster. And so proposals have been to, to create a smaller, more elite body of leaders who would be smaller and more flexible and could react quickly. Uh, I have speculated, you have speculated, and obviously we're influenced by the scriptures, that that number could be 10. Uh, I've seen the European Union talking about 10, 12, maybe at the most 15 countries. Very interesting about the European Union, though, they often zero in on one of their favorite numbers. It's almost like they're choosing our favorite number, and that number is 10. Many organizations are based on the number of 10. So what I think will happen and this is purely a guess, but 
but perhaps an educated guess. I think they will eventually redivide Europe and the European Union, including those countries around the Mediterranean, into ten regions, and those regions could then be the governing regions. They already have a, a group in the EU called the Regions Group that works on an economic level of regions, and that could well be how they could get from 44 down to 10 in the future. We've only have just a moment or two left on this time of interview with you, Rob. So talk to me about the fact that many of the European Union leaders want to elect a president, one leader for the European Union, and he will be a strong leader and he will lead this political, economic power base into the future. Sounds like the Antichrist to me. Well, yes. They Again, this co- this economic crisis has forced them to say we need to react quicker. We need a single leader. Right now in the structure of the European Union, there are three leaders. They are saying they need one leader who can speak for them all. And certainly we know that when they start thinking that way and when you're talking an empire, we could well be looking at the stage totally being set for that final ruler of the world empire. Wow. And if that is not a scenario that sets the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled, I don't know what is. Dr. Rob Congdon, he's the man who covers the European Union for us. He's also a great student of Bible prophecy and a teacher of Bible prophecy as well. So that's how he pulls the geopolitical activities together with the biblical prophetic truth that will be fulfilled in the future. Rob, thank you so very much for joining us. This was great insight on the program today. I appreciate it so much, and we'll talk again next week. We'll look forward to it, to talk next week. I'll be in Europe. Lord bless. Great conversation with Dr. Rob Condon. Hey, we have to take a break. When we come back, I'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. 
And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, we discussed geopolitical activities with our broadcast partners, and we also had conversations with Yoel Karen and David Wilder. We talked with these two men about the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles and the gathering of tens of thousands of Jews at the Western Wall Plaza in Jerusalem for the priestly blessing. These conversations with our broadcast partners actually bring our attention and focus it on stage-setting events in our world that seem to be indicating that the rapture of the church could happen at any moment. More on that in just a moment as it relates to the rapture and what is going on in our world that indicates it could be at any moment. You know, our broadcast partners had wonderful reports giving us insight into the details behind the headlines. For example, we talked in Washington, D.C. to Ken Timmerman, and we discussed what's going on in somewhat of a cover-up at the White House on intelligence coming in, especially focused on al-Qaeda in northern Africa. We also talked about the Muslim Brotherhood demonstrating in Jordan and the Muslim Brotherhood spreading here into the United States. That is a dangerous situation. Ken brought to our attention that Russia has warned NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, to not deal with Syria to stay out of that whole situation. David Dolan gave us our Middle East news update. We took a look also at the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan and Israel's concerns. You remember, Jordan has the longest border with Israel. The Muslim Brotherhood has the presidency in Egypt, the largest of the Arab countries in the world. They are helping to lead the opposition against Bashar Assad in Syria. And if they take over Jordan, that would have Israel completely surrounded by the Muslim Brotherhood. This is a very much concern to the Israelis. And by the way, there were riots that took place on the Temple Mount, this may be a sign that there's going to be another Antifada. That is an uprising by the Palestinian people. They were chasing Jewish worshipers on the Temple Mount and stopping them from being able to celebrate on the Temple Mount their Feast of Tabernacles. Dr. Rob Congdon, he gave us our update on the European Union. What we actually did is have a discussion about how the European Union may well be setting the stage for the fulfillment of Bible prophecy with the establishment of the revived Roman Empire. This is a conversation you want to listen to. It was very, very informative. In fact, all of these conversations are located on our website, prophecytoday.com. You go there, and on the right-hand column, you'll see PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, Every one of the conversations I have had with the broadcast partners on this weekend edition of Prophecy Today will be available there. Tell your friends how they can listen to these reports as well. Again, the address, prophecytoday.com, PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. It's radio when you want it, when it's convenient for you, when it's the best time for you to be able to listen to these very, very special reports. And do remember to mention to your friends, and you might want to listen again to these interviews 
use yourself. David Wilder, we talked about Hevron and the big celebration for the Feast of Tabernacles out there. And with Rabbi Yoel Karen, he gave us a report about the priestly blessings that took place at the Western Wall Plaza there at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. These two discussions, by the way, are what I want to develop as we take a look at the book. You know, the Feast of Tabernacles is the last of the seven Jewish feasts. You have Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Pentecost. Those are the three spring feasts. Then you have In the Fall, three feasts, which starts with the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. Tabernacles, the last of these seven feasts. David Wilder shared with us the celebration that was going on in Hebron. He said something upward of 80,000 people were there in Hebron for the big celebration. Now, Hebron is the oldest Jewish community in the history of the world. Abraham established it 4,000 years ago. But it is the second most sacred spot because Abraham also purchased a burial site for the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their wives. He gave us a great history. You want to listen to that conversation with David Wilder. But it was a part of what the Jewish people do to celebrate Feast of Tabernacles. They build a sukkah. A sukkah is a thatched hut. You see, there is historic significance to these feasts, and that's how they lived when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. Well, it was a great time in Hebron for all the Jewish people celebrating there. As part of the tabernacle celebration as well, there's the priestly blessing. It took place this last week at the Western Wall Plaza at the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. Well, Karen, he reported to us the activities. Tens of thousands of Jews gathered to receive the priestly blessing. And, and to be able to do that, there had to be thousands of the priests there to offer these blessings. Christians from all over the world, they gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, a big parade, and then they were there at the Western Wall Plaza for the priestly blessings. This is all a part of the Bible calling for everybody in the world to go to Jerusalem at the time of Feast of Tabernacles. That's found in Zechariah chapter 14. You know, each of the feasts have a prophetic significance as well. Jesus Christ, he was crucified on Passover, buried on unleavened bread, resurrected on first fruits, and the Holy Spirit came to Pentecost there in Jerusalem on the last of the spring feast. Jesus Christ will fulfill in the proper day sequences the remaining feast as well. He will return to the earth, that's the second coming, on the Feast of Trumpets. Now, that's not the rapture of the church, it's the second coming. Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31 talks about Jesus telling the angel to blow a trumpet and call for the Jews to gather in Jerusalem, a solemn assembly. Jesus Christ will enter the temple, and he does that on the Feast of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 to 28, talks about once in the end of time, Jesus Christ will go in the temple as the high priest. The kingdom, that thousand-year millennial kingdom, will begin on Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this was... Now, this was alluded to in Matthew chapter 17 when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus Christ in his glorified kingdom body. And so the kingdom will unfold on Feast of Tabernacles. What we've been watching happening in our world today is in reality setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. But before all of this happens, the rapture of the church takes place. And by the way, that could happen at any moment. And having said that, there's nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up 
until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.